Greetings, everyone. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Verispa, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. Also want to welcome our online viewers as well. We are continuing our study from the book of Exodus. I want you to imagine we are in the year 2422. That's 400 years from now. 400 years is a long time. Hard to even get our head around it, right? And that's probably how long the nation of Israel was in bondage in Egypt. For centuries, they were under the iron hand of Pharaoh. God heard the cries of his people. He raises Moses as their deliverer. Moses confronts Pharaoh and commands him to let God's people go. And when Pharaoh refused, God unleashed a set of plagues to demonstrate his power to Israel, Egypt, and the whole world, that they all may come to know that he is the one true God. But Pharaoh had hardened his heart and refused to free Israel. So God increased the intensity of the plagues to humble Pharaoh, forcing him to release his hold on God's people. The last time we looked at the final plague, the death of the firstborn and the institution of the Passover, God commanded every family in Israel to slaughter a lamb and apply its blood to the door frames. Every household marked with the blood of the lamb was spared, but all the other houses in Egypt were impacted, and their firstborn sons died overnight. You can hear loud wailing and crying all over Egypt as people suffered from the consequences of Pharaoh's rebellion. A Pharaoh who had been stubborn all along, the same Pharaoh who spoke so arrogantly and said, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Who had told Moses, I don't want to ever see your face again. The same Pharaoh will now beg for the Israelites to leave. This was total humiliation of a mighty nation that rebelled against God's purposes. And in the contest of power, Yahweh, the God of Israel, was clearly asserting his supremacy over all of Egypt and their gods. We come now to Exodus chapter 12, verses 31 and 32 says, During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go, and also bless me. Now, that is a remarkable change from a person who said, I will never let you go. You are my slaves forever to leave. Get out of here. Go away from this place. Go worship the Lord. Take your flocks with you. We don't want you here. In the following verses in Exodus 12, you will see all the Egyptians urged the Israelites to leave their country. They said, if you stay any longer, we are all going to perish, so get out of here ASAP. And they gave them articles of silver and gold and clothing. They paid them to leave. Now, all of this happened overnight. 
Israel, after 400 years of slavery, was a free nation. The years of bondage ended abruptly. They didn't just sneak out through the back door. This was not an escape act. They marched royally out of Egypt. Overnight, the people of Israel left Egypt as free people. Their status had changed dramatically. You know, over the years, I've talked to several people who have fled their country as refugees. Usually, it is a secret operation. They run in the hope that nobody will ever find out. They risk their lives, and they know if they get caught, that will be the end of their earthly existence. So entire groups of people try to cross the border of an oppressed country with the hope of finding freedom. But that's not how the exodus happened. It was not a secret operation. The Israelites walked out like a victorious army loaded with the spoils of the enemy. Exodus 12, verses 37 and 38 says, the Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, and there were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. That is an astonishing number. 600,000 men. You add the women and children, we are looking at over 2 million people. Some scholars question these numbers and wonder if it is some sort of an exaggeration. To me, that is not a huge issue. Keep in mind, at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, Pharaoh was concerned about the numerical growth of the Israelites. And that is why he was perceiving them as a threat. They were large in number. So two million may seem like a big figure to us, but it is not unreasonable. And interestingly, this large group of people that left Egypt overnight consisted of not only the Israelites, but many other people joined who were not ethnically Jewish. The purpose of the plagues, as I mentioned to you before, was to reveal God, to demonstrate His power and glory to all of Egypt so that the Egyptians would come to know Him. The fact that other people joined the Israelites is a sign that some of them believed. Egyptians, as well as some other people groups who dwelt in the land, placed their faith in the God of Israel, and now they wanted to follow the Israelites as they left the country. And that also explains why we have such a large number of people leaving Egypt overnight. Now, Exodus 12 Verses 40 and 41 says, Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. After all the years of slavery and downright oppression, God proved faithful to His promise. He had told Abraham in the book of Genesis chapter 15 that his descendants will be slaves in Egypt, but he also reassured Abraham that God was going to bring them back again. And now God had proven his trustworthiness to
to his people yet again. They left Egypt at the appointed time. It happened right on schedule. There is an application for us right there. Hard times do not erase God's promises. He is faithful and true. He will accomplish His purpose. God always comes through. God always comes through at the right time, even if His timetable is different from ours. And there are times and seasons in life when we will be tempted to question God's promise. In those seasons, your experiences and circumstances may not align with what God has promised. There may be a gap between your current reality and what God says He will do in the future. And those are the moments we are called to cling to God's Word. For we know the character of the one who made these promises. He is reliable. He is trustworthy. He will not let you down. Now, here's something important for us to consider. Israel was free overnight from the iron hand of Pharaoh. They were on their own going towards the land that God was going to provide them. But this was not freedom so that they can do whatever they want. They were not being freed to live for themselves. This freedom was a transfer of allegiance. They were freed from the oppressive regime of Pharaoh so that they can come now under the reign of God. God clearly asserts his claim over the Israelites. Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, explains that clearly. God says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Again, he repeats in Exodus 13, 11 to 13, after the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with the lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Then he says, redeem every firstborn among your sons. Now, through the Passover, we see God saved Israel's firstborn sons. But now, he claims ownership over them. God says, they're free from Pharaoh and his oppression, but they're now my slaves. I own them. They are my possession because I have paid the price for their freedom. And to communicate that, they, that they belong to God, they offered a sacrifice in the place of the firstborn. And that served as a visible sign that they have been redeemed. A price has been paid by God himself who now claims ownership over their lives. Now, the word consecrate or set apart is a crucial word in our understanding of salvation. It leads us to the doctrine of sanctification in the Bible. 
God has not only saved us, but he has also set us apart. In the biblical world, they had bond slaves who didn't have any sort of freedom. They belonged to someone else, and bond slaves were not free to follow their personal dreams, whims, and desires. They had no rights of their own, absolutely no rights. They lived to serve their master. And that's how Israel was in Egypt, slaves to Pharaoh, under oppression, bondage. They were being constantly exploited. But now that God had freed them, they were no longer slaves in Egypt. They had been bought by someone else. Another person has paid a price, a ransom. And they owed their freedom to Yahweh, and he was their new master. See, what God is doing is he's redeeming a community of people who now belong to him. And they, going forward, exclusively live to serve God's purposes. And let's not forget in all of this, God was a different master. Unlike Pharaoh, who ruthlessly exploited the people, God wanted the very best. He didn't demand submission because he needed something from the people. In fact, it's the other way around. It is in submitting to the lordship of God, the people will experience life to the full. It is in surrendering their rights and living for God that the Israelites will find true satisfaction and contentment in life. So that is very clearly explained in, in the Old Testament. Now let me ask you, is that just an Old Testament concept? Not at all. But you will see this principle of sanctification very clearly explained in the New Testament. Just as God saved the firstborn of the Israelites and he asserted his authority over them, in the same way in the New Testament we find that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are freed from slavery to sin. However, that is only the beginning of our salvation journey. We are justified by faith and we are saved from our sins. But then comes sanctification. We are sanctified, set apart, so we now exclusively live for God's purposes. Now that's what the word holiness means. We are a holy people. Now when we think of holiness, we think of moral purity. So we don't even feel comfortable saying, I am a holy person. In fact, our society uses the word negatively to poke fun at people. While there is a moral connotation to holiness, the word fundamentally means we have been set apart. Holiness is not just a call to perfection, but it is a call to be distinct. A holy person has a kingdom allegiance. They're no longer living for their own kingdom of self-centered happiness, but they're living all out for God's purposes. We once used to live 
for ourselves. That was our life before we met Jesus Christ. But after we encounter Christ, we live for Jesus and Jesus alone. And that is why we have a problem when Christians claim that they have encountered Jesus Christ, but carry on living for themselves. No, the moment you encounter Christ, you give the lordship of your life over to him, you start serving a new master. And that is what the apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote so clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I have news for you. You are no longer your own. Your life doesn't belong to you. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus sets you free from your sin, and he sets you free from yourself. You lose ownership over your life. Jesus is now in charge. He is in the driver's seat of your life. As I reflected on this, I realized Surrendering and acknowledging our lives totally belong to God can turn into a mental exercise. We can mentally or conceptually agree with the idea of sanctification that we have been set apart, our lives wholly belong to God, and we can say amen to that. But the truth of that commitment is tested when God ask you to move outside of your comfort zone. When he demands that we do something that goes against our personal will, when God infringes on our privacy, how we respond to him at that moment is the litmus test that tells whether we have fully surrendered to him or not. And if you are honest with ourselves, some of us say to God, God, I'm willing to give all these areas of my life to you, but here are some areas that I would like to keep for myself. I want you to take your hands off these areas. Lord, I can give all these things over to you, but don't ask me for my finances, because that is my hard-earned money. Lord, I'm willing to give up all these things, but don't ask me to surrender my sexual life because my pleasure is important to me. I can do all these things for you, God, but don't ask me to serve in a ministry area because I like my evenings to myself. See, it doesn't work like that. You don't get to Pick and choose when it comes to these things. Surrender means you're willing to lay down all of your rights, all of your preferences, all of yourself. Every area of your life is 
given into the hands of Jesus, whose bond slave you are. That is the Christian life. And this question of surrender is not just for new believers or those who are struggling in a specific area of sin in their life. Those of us who've been Christians for years who would consider ourselves as mature followers of Christ, we need to constantly evaluate our hearts to see if indeed we are surrendered to Him. And we need to do that on a regular basis. Looking at my own life, I realize how easy it is to settle into a comfort zone and not even consider the possibility that God might be asking me to step outside of that comfort zone, that familiar way of life, and venture into uncharted territories. We can get so set in our ways, so accustomed to our routines, that we no longer expect God would ask us to do something that is totally outside our radar. And that's why we need a fresh challenge and a regular introspection, examining our lives in the presence of God and allowing Him to scan those deep areas in our life. And as frightening as it may sound, That attitude of surrender whereby we stand in the presence of Jesus with an open hand is the path through which God's biggest blessings flow. When you're fully consecrated to God and your heart is fully yielded to Him, then God can finally bless you and make you a blessing. Why? Because you're no longer living for yourself. You have given yourself entirely to God's agenda. And what has helped in my own life is recognizing God always has my best interest at heart. I'm not giving my life in the hands of a ruthless monarch who wants to exploit me. This is a loving father who wants the very best for my life. It is safe to place my life at his disposal. Our text in Exodus illustrates this idea of sanctification through yet another festival. We talked about the festival of the Passover, but related to the Passover, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We find that here in our text in Exodus chapter 13, verses 3 to 10, some detailed uh, rules and regulations surrounding the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Let me read to to you these words. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, Because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. 
for seven days, eat bread made without yeast. And on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On the day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. What we see here is God is instituting a tradition that will serve as a reminder for generations to come of an important spiritual truth. A Passover and unleavened bread were two festivals that were intertwined together. They were held to commemorate the night of the Exodus and keep it alive in the minds of the generations who are to come. The feast of the unleavened bread is a week-long feast that followed the Passover. And that entire week, for seven days, bread looked very different. It was flat bread. It tasted different because it had no yeast in it. And the children in the family are very inquisitive by nature. So anytime they see something that is outside the norm, immediately they'll ask the question, why is the bread so different? You don't have to teach kids to ask those why questions. And that was a, a brilliant teaching moment for the whole family. To be able to remind everyone why they were doing what they were doing. The reason they were eating bread without yeast was to remember the night of the Exodus. It should never be forgotten. That was so crucial to the life of the nation. For that night, they left Egypt in a hurry. It was sudden. There was no time for yeast to rise in the dough. They had no time for it to become fermented. This was not the time for any leisurely baking activities. This was not the time to try your Martha Stewart recipes. They had to flee overnight. So there was no time for the yeast to rise. So all of this was communicated to the whole family through this feast. There's more to it than just remembering history. Because East is also symbolic of sin in the Bible. The New Testament clarifies that. As a people who have been set apart, the Israelites were communicating that they have to live differently. That they were God's own people, a chosen community who have been set apart, sanctified for his purposes. That they were no longer in bondage in Egypt, but with freedom came responsibility. That they were to leave Egypt once and for all. There cannot be any influence of Egypt in their life anymore. As they carry on living in the promised land, their former lives could not color their new life that they were living. So they could not take Egypt with them to the promised land. The feasts that they celebrated 
help the Israelites to remember their story. Remembrance is important because we are a forgetful people. And rituals have great power. Our pragmatic world needs to recognize that and rediscover the value of traditions. The Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread served to refresh people's memory as they recounted their salvation story. Now, as followers of Christ, we also have a ritual that we observe that serves as a reminder. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said in the Gospels, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus knew we also are a forgetful people, and we need visible, concrete reminders. And the Lord's Supper is a way for us to remember the price that was paid for our freedom. That the bondage of sin in our life is broken once and for all, and we are a community set apart, consecrated for God's purposes. So we're going to end our service today by observing the Lord's Supper. This is a meal we celebrate as Christ followers to remember Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb who was substituted in our place. The Passover that God instituted in Exodus is a clear pointer to the Lord's Supper. Just as the Israelites were saved by faith, by applying the blood of the Lamb on their doorposts, in the same way we are also saved by faith, by trusting in the blood of Jesus to wash away our sins. Now in the text in Exodus, there are some restrictions on who can participate in the Passover meal. It's important for us to understand the reason for these restrictions. Exodus 12 Verses 43 to 45, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him. But a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. So we find here some rules around who can actually participate in the Passover meal. A foreigner can't participate in the Passover. A temporary resident or a hired worker in Israel could not participate in it. And you may be wondering, why? Why all these rules and regulations? Why such racist discrimination? Why all such exclusiveness? Can we not open this up for everybody? And as you read the text, you will see the concern of the text and the heart of God is not who to keep out of the meal, but who to welcome in. The Passover was the celebration of the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament. So in order to celebrate this meal, it makes sense you understand first and foremost that you have been redeemed. So people didn't have that understanding. It makes no sense for them to participate in a meal that commemorates redemption. So slaves and foreigners who were circumcised, who were 
living long-term in Israel, and we're part of the Israelite community, we're invited to eat. In the Old Testament, circumcision was the external sign of entrance into the covenantal community. So those who took part in the Passover meal should belong to the covenantal community of God. And that needed to be defined carefully, and that explains the reason for the exclusiveness. A commitment to worshiping the one true God was the criteria. What mattered was not ethnicity or kinship, but worship. People who didn't worship God or appreciate the redemption that he has provided cannot participate in this meal. So all those regulations were there for a purpose. And you will see that the same regulations associated with the Passover, those principles still apply to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a celebration for Christian believers. So the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and 28, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Just as the Passover was not a meal for everybody, but only for those who belong to the covenantal community, in the same way, the Lord's Supper is a meal reserved only for Christian believers. It is for those of us who have appropriated by faith what Jesus has done for us on the cross and received a personal forgiveness for our sins. And before we partake of the elements in the Lord's Supper, we examine our hearts. We confess anything that needs to be confessed. We recommit our lives to living all out for Jesus. We remind ourselves that we are a consecrated community called out, called out to live a holy life. That's how we will end our service today. We will remind ourselves that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are a community of God's people set apart for His purposes. So I want us to take a moment to pause and reflect. At this time, I'm going to hand it over to our campus pastors to lead the Lord's Supper in your campus. And here at Center Campus, let us close our eyes and maintain a moment of silence. And this is a time to examine your heart. If you see there's something that you need to confess before the Lord, and do that right now. And also, Commit yourself to following him faithfully. Let him know that you have surrendered everything to him and it is your heart's desire to live a consecrated life. So let's maintain a moment of silence and then I'll pray for us.
Father, we are truly grateful that you have extended this invitation to us to be members of your family. There was a time in our life when we were serving the world. But that is long gone. Today, we live to serve you and you alone. We pray, dear Lord, that as we partake of these elements, that we will encounter Jesus afresh. That you will renew our resolve to live for you. That you will feed us. You will strengthen us. You will enable us to live our life in the power of your spirit. And we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to ask all of us to stand right now. And even as you're standing, you can get your elements ready by just opening the wrapper on the top. You will be able to take the bread out and then there's another layer that you need to remove to be able to drink from the cup. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember the life, death, resurrection, and the glorious return of the Lord Jesus. The body of Jesus was broken, so the power of sin is canceled in our lives. So as the covenantal community of God's people, let's partake of this bread with gratitude. blood of Jesus was shed not only to forgive us of our sins but to consecrate us for God's service so let's partake of this with gratitude as we remain standing I'm going to hand it over to our worship team to lead us in a closing song and then I'll come back and pray for us